Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Mark 8, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd of his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. Welcome to our congregation and to this second Sunday of Lent. And if you were here with us last week, you might remember that we started this new teaching series that we're calling Inside Out. And we've tried in various ways to make the point that real change is not reputation management. Real change is not superficial. Real change starts from within, and it works its way out in tangible ways. And we said last Sunday that we cannot make this change happen in our lives without Jesus, that Jesus is the source. Think about that. Jesus is the source, and it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we then become new creations in Christ. So I want to go one step further with you this morning and talk with you about the cost, because there's a cost involved when we decide that we want our lives to be transformed from the inside out, to go from bondage to freedom, to go from death to life, to go from selfishness to generosity, to go from sinfulness to holiness and from hate to love. It's not easy. It involves a cost. And you say, well, what is that cost? Well, I think today's reading sets us up. It gets us on the path to understanding the cost of discipleship. And so the picture that you're looking at is one that I take pride in, obviously. From one Jamaican to another Jamaican, you're looking at one of history's most famous Olympian and athlete, and if you don't know who that is, his name is Usain Bolt. 
He won eight gold medals in three different Olympics. I think the one that you're looking at is from the London Olympics. And those eight gold medals totaled about 115 seconds on the track as he ran the 100, the 200, and the four by 100 meter races. And these victories earned him about $119 million. And we might call that the economy of effort the economy of effort. But those almost two minutes, for those almost two minutes, he trained for over 20 years. And we call that investment. And we call that thinking long-term. And we call that having the patience. But we also call that the cost. For him to become this renowned sprinter, there was a cost involved. In fact, in fact, anything that we value, anything that we want to accomplish in life, it involves a cost. And so there's a cost to be paid for wanting to become a doctor. There's a cost to be paid for wanting to become a teacher or a mother or a father. There's a cost that we pay when we choose to get married. There's a cost one pays for accepting a job as a pastor, as an accountant, as a nurse, or even starting a business. There's a cost that you pay when you decide you want to be physically fit or to lose weight or to become a lifelong learner. There is a cost. There's a cost that you pay when you decide I'm going to finish high school or I'm going to college, or I'm not even gonna bother going to college, there is a cost. And Jesus weighed in on this business of cost. And you heard it in the reading. But here's another way that he said it from Luke 14. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And Jesus continues, or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 soldiers to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, then he will send a delegation while the other is still on the way and ask for terms of peace. And then Jesus says this in the same way. And that's the point we wanna make. Those who do not give up everything and I want you to keep that phrase in mind. Those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. And that's really at the heart of what I want to talk to you about. The cost of discipleship. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus reminds those who are following him of the cost. And you see it in chapters 8 and chapter 9 in chapter 10, and I kept asking myself, why the repetition? Does Jesus think people are so thick-headed? Why the repetition? Why the constant reminders? Because I think it's because Jesus knows that no one, no one, including all of us, 
No one ever drifts into transformation. No one ever drifts into change. No one ever just wakes up one morning and suddenly they're fully devoted disciples of Jesus. There is a cost. And that's why I think as I'm continuing to read the Gospels, I'm beginning to understand why Jesus would say things like, many are called, few are chosen, or why he would say the first shall be last and the last shall be first, because Jesus is not interested in a fan base. He's not interested in popularity. He's not interested in groupies. He's interested in people who are willing to give up everything to see their lives transformed and become devoted disciples of Jesus. And you say, well, Pastor, where do you see that in the reading? Well, let me just walk you through three different places where I see Jesus making this point. One of the sections we didn't read, and it's verses 27 through 30. And it's simply this, that questions about Jesus demand an answer. That's one of the, the things we must contend with as we consider the cost, is answer the question, who is Jesus? Answer that question. So Jesus turned to his disciples and said, who do people say that I am? And as they fumbled around for an answer, then Jesus finally asked them a second question, who do you say that I am? And I'm telling you, there's a world of difference between the two. And I want to encourage you to be clear about the second question. Because people today have a gazillion definitions and answers as to who Jesus is. But Jesus is coming to you today and asking you, but who do you say that I am? And I want you to be clear. Don't, don't, don't focus on what Pastor Ray says as to who Jesus is. Don't focus on what that social media mogul says who Jesus is. But ask yourself the question, who is Jesus to me? What do the scriptures say about Jesus? Because look, if we are fuzzy in our thinking about Jesus, I guarantee you we're going to be equally fuzzy and, and ambiguous in our understanding of what he's calling us to do. So there are questions. There is a question about Jesus that demands an answer. The second thing I would want you to consider is in verses 31 through 33, as we think about the cost of discipleship, we must understand that there are some teachings about Jesus that we must embrace. Answer the question, embrace the teachings. And so Jesus then, in verse 31 through 33, it says he turns to the crowds and the disciples, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, and I underline that word in my Bible, must undergo great suffering, must undergo rejection, must undergo death, must undergo resurrection. This is the path. This is the road. This is the plan that is for him. Now guess what? If we follow him, guess what's going to happen to us? That's right. We too must expect that the road will be hard. And that's why Peter could not accept Jesus's gruesome negative portrayal. Didn't want to hear that message. And in Tim Keller's commentary on this text, he said this, that never before this moment had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. 
They connected triumph with the Messiah, yes. They connected power with the Messiah. They connected conqueror with the Messiah, victor with the Messiah. Yes, all of that, but rejection, suffering, death, no way. And this was Peter's dilemma. In fact, I would suggest to you that Peter was offended that Jesus would talk this way to tell the disciples that he is here to die voluntarily. And so Peter, being Peter, takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And you know what's interesting about that word? The last time you and I were using that word rebuke was a few Sundays ago when we were reading Mark 1 together, where Jesus goes into Capernaum, into the synagogue, he's teaching in the synagogue, and the demon in this man rises up and disrupts the worship service. And Jesus did this. He rebuked the demonic spirit. Same word. Peter takes Jesus aside and does to Jesus what Jesus did to the demon. He had the audacity to rebuke Jesus. He doesn't like Jesus' message. And Jesus says, look, I am the Messiah of God. And Peter, you were right about that. But I want you to know this, Peter, your Messiah, your King, came not to carve out power, not to establish a political kingdom that would rival the Romans. Your Messiah and King came to die. I'm not here to take power. I'm here to lose it, he says. I'm not here to rule. I'm here to serve. Peter, this is how I'm going to change your life. And this is how we're going to change the world. Some years ago, I read uh, the writings of the theologian William Vanstone. And he wrote about what's called the phenomenology of love. And this is what he said, and this is so true. He said, all human beings, even people from childhood, were deprived of love, know the difference between false and true love, fake and authentic love. Here's the difference, Van Stone says. In false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. Anyone know anything about that? With false love, your love is conditional. You give it only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs, and it is non-vulnerable. You hold back so that you can cut your losses if necessary. But in true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use your love for the happiness of the other because your greatest joy is that person's joy. I hope you're in a relationship like that with a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a parent, a husband, a wife. I hope you have people in your life where you experience that kind of love. And so that kind of love is unconditional. You give it regardless of whether your loved one meets your needs. And it's radically vulnerable. And you spend everything. And you hold nothing back and you give it all away. Where am I going with this? I think this is the point Jesus wanted Peter to understand that, Peter, I'm here because of love for you. I'm here because I love the world, and I'm here to give, and love gives, and love serves, and love sacrifices for the other. And Peter was not ready to embrace this radical teaching. He wasn't ready. And so Jesus then turns around and rebukes Peter for being a minion of Satan. Jesus exposes him for his flawed thinking. 
And he basically tells him, look, Peter, Peter, you are more interested in the creature comforts of this life than of God's plan and God's agenda for your life. Peter wants the glory without the cross. He wants the perks without the cross. And if we are going to follow our Lord Jesus Christ, the cost that is before us is we must embrace this teaching about Jesus, that as he lived, so must we. As he walked, so must we. As he was tempted, so will we. As he was scandalized and ridiculed and dismissed and diminished and crucified and, spoke, and spoken ill of, so will we. Are you ready for that cost? And so there it is. We need to answer the question, who is Jesus? We need to embrace the message that this King and Messiah in love came to die and give a power. The last thing he tells us is that there is also, it's personal. It's personal. There's a personal cost. And you see that in verses 34 through 38, you can't be a disciple. You can't be a follower of Jesus from the sidelines. And Jesus didn't make it easy. He did not. I'm sorry. He said, look, verse 34, if anyone, if anyone to become my followers, let them, you hear these words now, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Discipleship, that's what we're talking about. There's no question in my mind that the only message Jesus ever proclaimed, the only message was a message of discipleship. The call that Jesus gave from the start of his ministry to the end of his ministry was to come and follow me. It was a call to submission. It was a call to obedience. It was never a plea to take up some kind of a momentary decision where we just say, well, I want to make sure I'm in so that when I die, I get to heaven. And then you just go on living any way you want. That's not the call to discipleship, brothers and sisters. The invitation of Jesus is always a call to come and die. It's a costly commitment and it's personal. And yet in the American culture, we have developed this incredible, uniquely American theology that says you can be a Christian and not worry about being committed. You can believe and not worry about the ramifications of that belief. You can be a Christian in America and not be a disciple. So I've been to so many NFL games, particularly being a black and gold Pittsburgh guy, Steelers guy. And I've been to these games and it is an experience. And every now and then when I'm there, you see the signs that you're looking at. John 3.16. I've always wondered if somebody from, from Mars came for a football game, I know that's one of the questions they would be asking is, what, what is that? Is that, is that a is that a sales pitch? What is John 3.16? Well, for us in the insider group, the Christian group, we know. We know that's a powerful text. It's one that we know. It's one that we say. And it reminds us of God's love for us. And I am so confident that you know this text very well, that you will be able to do this next thing. You'll be able to fill in the blanks. So I know I can't hear you, but I'm going to I'm just going to believe that you know it. For God so, and you know what that word is, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. I guarantee you, if we were to tally the score, every one of you would get a perfect score. You would just ace the quiz. But I have another question for you. I've never seen anyone hold up a sign that says Mark 835. So quick, I'm not going to make it this easy for you now. Can you say what Mark 835 says? Don't, don't look in your Bible. Mark 835, you, go to, you went to that football game, that basketball game, that baseball game, and somebody holds up, Mark 835, Mark 835. Would you know what that says? So yeah, that's a little tougher. And chances are that's not happening. Because Mark 8.35 is one of the more un-American verses that you're going to find in the Bible. It's politically incorrect. It's like a downer. Who wants to hear Mark 8.35 when you're enjoying yourself at a game? Here's what Mark 8.35 says. It's right there on your screen. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who will lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. And that's why no one, you won't see that happen at anywhere in any of America's ballparks where somebody holds up a sign, Mark 8, 35. It's not happening. But either way, that's what we need to contend with. It's very personal and there is a cost. And if you try to save your life, and sustain your way of life, you're going to lose it. And that's why if you go back to Usain Bolt, I am so excited for that young man. I'm proud of him, one Jamaican to another. But you know, in the large scheme of things, that's all going away. Can't take it with you. But if you lose your life for something bigger, something grander, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel, you're going to gain your life. And Jesus goes on and he says, look, if you gain the world, a lot of people want to gain the world, but you lose your soul, boy, that's not, a, that's not a good investment. There's a cost there. What can you give in exchange for your life? And the answer is nothing. And I sometimes wonder if this could be the reason why the church in the West is often shrinking and the church in the global South continue to, to expand and grow. Here in the West, we want to gain Christ, yet keep our lives unchanged, keep our lifestyle, keep our values, keep our systems. And like Peter, we say, well, Pastor Ray, let's get off this topic. It's too much of a downer. Don't talk to me about death. Don't talk to me about commitment. Could that be the reason why the church in places in the West, in the United States, in North America, Canada, Europe, is in so much trouble. Just enough religion to get me into heaven, but not enough to rattle my cage and change my life. While Christians in other parts of the world are willing to lose their life for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus, and it says in verse 31, Jesus says they're not ashamed of Jesus and his words before a a sinful and adulterous generation, those who confess me 
are not ashamed of me and of my words before a sinful and an adulterous generation. So to pick up the cross then, listen friends, to pick up the cross is not to raise your hand or to sign a card. It's not to say, oh, woe is me, I have so much trouble in my life, I guess this is a cross I have to bear. To pick up the cross is not that. To pick up the cross is to come to the end of oneself and one's sin and become so desirous of Christ and his righteousness that we will make any sacrifice for him. Is that where you are? Are you willing to endure? Are you willing to give up? Are you willing to surrender, even die for the sake of following him? By the way, I'm still working on that question. I'd like to say yes always. I love to sing the song, but I don't know if I'm ready to live the song all to Jesus. I surrender. It's personal. All to him I freely give. I love that song but I'm not sure if I'm always ready to live that song. And I think that's what it means when Jesus says, pick up your cross. And people in the audience that day would have been aghast because dying on a cross is the most horrific, the most shameful, the most dehumanizing thing that, that the enemies would do to, to the thief or the robber or the insurrectionist that the Romans caught. You would be stripped naked in your birthday suit and you would be hanging out, dying on a cross. And Jesus says, yes, pick up that cross. And that is a cost. And that's why when you begin to live that way, it leads to transformation. And your mind begins to take on a kingdom mindset. And you still love this world and you want to see God at work in this world, but you have your heights, your sights set on something bigger than just your life in this world. When Jesus told the parable of the man who found the treasure, the man buried the treasure, ran back home, took everything that he owned so that he could acquire this pearl of greatest price. That's the cost. And the reason why this is so important for us as a church, it is churches filled with people who understand the cost. Who begin to have an impact in the kingdom of God on this earth. This pandemic, if it's teaching us anything, is that the days of casual Christianity, that needs to end. And it's time now to pursue Jesus, pursue God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And in doing that, we're gonna lose some things. We're gonna gain the most essential thing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.